0: We can talk all we want, but if we don't have diversity at the table, and I think it needs to be, if we're talking about structural or racism, generally, we need to bring all groups together. So it's not just today, it's an Asian problem. Tomorrow is police brutality against another group. It is all part of a larger issue that we need to confront together.
1: We decided to study the hashtag Chinese virus and hashtag COVID-19 to see if there are differences in negative sentiment associated with these hashtags, and also to see if President Trump's use of Hashtag Chinese virus in March of last year made any difference in the online discourse.
2: Hello and welcome. This is the May 2021 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. In Atlanta, on March 16, 2021, a man walked into three spas and shot and killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. Such tragic events have been escalating since the beginning of the pandemic. In 2020 compared to 2019, anti-Asian hate crimes have increased from 49 to 122 in 16 of America's largest cities. This is an increase of 2.5 times since the beginning of the pandemic. The information comes from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University in San Bernardino. It is in this context of growing violence, and exactly one year before the rampage in Atlanta, that the former president of the United States referred to coronavirus as the Chinese virus in an infamous tweet. My guests in this issue are Dr. Gilbert G from UCLA and Dr. Sylvia Cho from the National Cancer Institute. We discuss the impact on anti-Asian racism and xenophobia of the use of the hashtag Chinese virus. And we also approach the role of social media in feeding or preventing racism and xenophobia.
1: Hello, I'm Gilbert G. I'm a professor in the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA.
0: My name is Sylvia Cho. I'm a program director at the National Cancer Institute, where I work in the health communication and informatics research branch.
2: Nice to
1: have you on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here.
2: Dr. G, in your research with Dr. Swen, you investigated anti-Asian racism uh, on the social media platform, Twitter.
1: Yes, so as you may know, the World Health Organization issued a statement in 2015 saying that we should use neutral scientific words to characterize diseases, and that we should not be using terms to connect illnesses with people or places because they can be stigmatizing and lead to harm from discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so, accordingly, the WHO has recommended that we use terms like COVID-19 rather than phrases like Chinese virus, which can be stigmatizing. Yet many leaders have opted to use the phrase Chinese virus. So what we decided to do was to study the language and to see if it actually matters. What we did was to gather data on hashtags from Twitter. As you probably know, people send messages on Twitter. These are short statements called tweets that express some idea. People use hashtags that they append onto the tweets. So, for example, you might tweet, I'm eating fruits and vegetables for dinner. Hashtag healthy life. A hashtag is kind of like a bumper sticker. If you liked a political candidate, you would put a bumper sticker on your car to show support for that candidate, but you would not put a bumper sticker of the opposing candidate on your car. And so that was one of the reasons we decided to study hashtags because they are used to signify support for an idea. We decided to study the hashtag Chinese virus and hashtag COVID-19 to see if there are differences in negative sentiment associated with these hashtags, and also to see if President Trump's use of hashtag Chinese virus in March of last year made any difference in the online discourse. We collected 1.2 million hashtags and had two research assistants independently code them for negative sentiment. So for example, hashtag chinks should pay and hashtag bomb China is negative, whereas hashtag pandemic life would be considered neutral. After coding, the analyses were pretty straightforward. We looked at how many hashtags were associated that were negative and whether there are any changes in the two weeks after Trump tweeted Chinese virus compared to the two weeks before.
2: What were the findings of your study?
1: First, Trump's tweets appeared to increase discussion about the pandemic a lot. After he tweeted, use of both hashtag COVID-19 and hashtag Chinese virus increased dramatically. Number two, before he tweeted, hashtag COVID-19 was the more commonly used hashtag compared to Chinese virus. But after he tweeted, the trend reversed so that hashtag Chinese virus was by far the more common term. The rise was very dramatic. COVID-19 hashtag rose by 800%, but hashtag Chinese virus rose a whopping 19% thousand percent. And importantly, hashtag Chinese virus was far more negative than COVID-19. About one in five hashtags associated with COVID-19 were negative, but one in two or half of hashtags associated with Chinese virus were negative.
2: So people were thinking in terms of COVID-19 and all of a sudden the former president introduces the hashtag Chinese virus and it unleashes a racist reaction without Twitter. That's what you found?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the negative sentiment amongst those using COVID-19 rose by 17,000% after Trump tweeted in March. So really, we found that his tweets appeared to matter a lot. It generated a lot of chatter about the pandemic increase the popularity of hashtag Chinese virus, and increase the volume of negative sentiment against Asian Americans.
2: Wow. So Sylvia, what was your reaction?
0: Yeah, definitely. As a social media researcher, I'm first of all interested in the role it plays in offering us access to data about attitudes and perceptions. But what I think surprised me more with the findings is social media actually is not Just surveillance, it potentially actually helps to perpetuate racism and and xenophobia as very well documented in the shift from the moment that the tweet and hashtag was used. So I think it gave us a lot to think about. What can we do? in a public health community to really understand the role these attitudes play. When you ask someone, a survey, do you have certain feelings about certain groups? They may not be able to be very accurate or genuine in certain ways, but if you look at what they say online, it gives you another way. I'm not saying it's the perfect data. It's not a nationally representative sample, but I think it's an early warning system that we could really uh, leverage as public health
2: researchers. But Sylvia, is Twitter representative of any larger population in the United States or elsewhere?
0: Yeah, yeah. This is the infodemiology world, right? If you want a particular racial and ethnic group, certain age group, and you compare that data with what you find in social media data mining. And definitely, they're not exactly equivalent. I think users tend to be younger, generally a little more educated, more urban dwelling. There are certain characteristics. But I would argue, just given the volume and the reach, that it is still extremely worthwhile, and it complements other sources of data related to these topics.
2: So, Dr. G, is this something you've tried to assess? The representativeness of those uh, tweets compared to the larger U.S. population?
1: As uh, Sylvia pointed out, people who tweet tend to be demographically similar than the U.S. population. So at the most basic level, you need to have access to a computer. and We know that not everybody has access to a computer and not everybody has the level of literacy. But at the same time, I think it's also really important to think about Twitter and other media platforms like Facebook as a key medium for people to communicate. We know, for example, that Twitter was used to mobilize the vote for Obama. It was used to mobilize the vote for Trump. Even though it's not completely representative of the U.S. population, it's still a very important medium for communication for not only Americans, but for people around the world. (music)
2: You showed that the former president was able to communicate a racist sentiment so efficiently. So, could we imagine the opposite, that Twitter could be used in particular by leading personalities to generate positive feelings? Um,
0: I think there are definitely a number of ways we could be creative and thinking about countering stigma and racism through use of social media. Just take I am not a virus hashtag as a way to fight back and also in the past, I had a chance to observe weight stigma, sort of this idea of fat shaming on social media. And we observed a lot of sort of counter messages saying, this is how I am and you don't know me. How dare you sort of calling out the kind of weight shaming or fat shaming. Uh, it's not okay to pick on a random person or p- pick on a whole racial group. So I think that you can call people out, you can counter and combat stigma. And lastly, it's an opportunity to push back and reinforce a sense of shared humanity, that we express solidarity and support with other minority communities. We've had Black Lives Matter and other groups that have been stigmatized. And I think using social media to show that it hurts and it's not okay. It's harmful, I think is a worthwhile effort. Last thing I would say is as a researcher, I would love to actually see the effect of such sort of countering and sort of correction, if you will. Can we actually think of it as a bystanders intervention opportunity? How can we make more visible that most people don't share these sentiments?
2: So, Sylvia, we have a kind of battle between a racist and an anti-racist trend on uh, Twitter. Yeah. So, can we use Twitter and other social media to monitor those trends and to see in which direction we are going, who's winning.
0: I think definitely. I think the observation of real-time unfolding of the different trends and interactions is very important. I do want to caution, though, that a lot of the disinformation campaigns on social media, really the underlying kind of goal is to divide people, to cause a fight. And we've seen this in, and AJPH has published several papers on the vaccine discourse. It's not just an Amplifying anti vaccine misinformation, but it's amplifying positions from all different perspectives to give people this sense that there is no consensus. We can't trust anybody. And I, I worry a lot about sort of putting up a fight, you know, without thinking thoughtfully about what it means. But I do think we need as scientists to really observe what's going on and the dynamics between different forces.
2: Yes, uh, Brian Yatovsky and colleagues, they showed in the AJPH that. Actually, the same groups were tweeting messages that were sometimes anti-democrats and sometimes anti-republicans just to create division and not to support a specific message. But I'd like to discuss now maybe the most sensitive aspect of all these social media controversies. How much do you think what's happening on social media is actually impacting the real violence, the physical violence that is occurring in society and that we have seen growing over the last year and this year.
1: You know, I wish we had hard data on this, but I can only speculate. But my speculation is really that it does matter. I I really believe that the discourse that has become more negative has used Asians, in particular Chinese, as scapegoats for the, you know, COVID pandemic. I can't help but believe that this actually has played an important role in the rise in anti-Asian violence. Again, you know, we don't have the data that can make these connections. There's generally a big problem because we don't have good data on hate crimes and victims. The FBI data are terribly underreported community groups have had to create their own systems to collect the data themselves but we haven't been able to connect these tweets you know it's kind of like when people talk and whether that leads to action we don't have that causal data but i can't help but believe that has to play a role and there's no to me compelling counterfactual that would explain the rise in anti-asian violence during this period
0: And I would say two things uh, to add to Gil's point. I think even if we don't have perfect data, just having hateful words and sort of having an abundance of it is itself a big problem for public health. And we have a lot of data, including Gil's work, showing us exposure to discrimination and sort of this kind of stigma hurts health and public health. So that's my first point is even if we don't have enough data, this is enough for us to be very, very nervous and concerned about. Number two, I think hate is like a water you know, trickling. It's a little bit at a time. So if you're exposed to a little bit of it, a little more of it, and you're distressed, you're stressed out, and you don't know who to blame for this giant mess we're in, it's easy to see why this is something that scapegoating can happen. And pandemic and public health crises throughout history, this has happened many, many times from AIDS to the other epidemics. So I think we have cumulative data to show us that this is very much deserving of our attention.
2: Yes, and the record of the United States in terms of anti-Asian racism is terrible. But may I ask you? something maybe more personal, I mean, because you're both of Asian descent, how do you feel today? How did last year impact you compared to what you used to live before that?
1: Well, I think like many of my friends and colleagues, I've had my share of racial slurs, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I even remember all these incidents personally growing up. So what we're seeing today in 2020, 2021, is nothing really new, although the volume has increased. So for me, it's a continuation of things I've experienced, not only living in California, but living across the nation. You know, I've lived in Ohio, Michigan, Maryland, and other places like that. And you always feel this in various ways. and. In my opinion, Asians are a safe group for people to attack because on the one hand, we're not completely seen as a minority group and Asians are seen as a model minority. And that has really been an idea that's been used as a wedge between people of color communities. At the same time, I think that this past year, to me, the trauma against myself is less acute than the trauma I've seen against my friends because at least for me, I've been able to put all of this work, all, all these things into a context. I build it into my research. It's part of my professional life. But for many of my friends, this is something they haven't had to think about too much. And so for them, it's maybe even more traumatizing. Maybe I'm just so, I don't know, habituated to it that even though it, I know it affects me, um, I can at least partition it aside a little bit. But I, I definitely think the spillover effects are important.
0: I think the biggest shock is to see so many of my friends and family and colleagues coming together and share their experiences, which some of them admitted they've never talked about. Everyone had stories and they pushed aside or their parents have told them, just keep your heads up, smile back if people say mean things to you and walk away. And that part has been, I think, having some personal impact for me. And even I'm a program director. So I talk to a lot of Asian American uh, investigators across the country and the stories they tell, especially in parts of the country that are less diverse and maybe have fewer Asians have been heartbreaking. Some people stopped going to Costco and going to the mall and at the beginning Asians were wearing masks a lot more. Having family members in Asia that have always worn masks even just in winter you know that they were being called out and they were too scared to go out because they want to wear masks but they don't want to be seen wearing masks.
2: extremely touched by what you say and I imagine that what you you've been going through and, and still what would you say is the most important and effective way to fight against racist trends?
1: For me, what we're seeing against Asian Americans in this moment in time is systematic of a much bigger problem of structural racism that faces all of us as Americans and global citizens. So we can do small things to change individual attitudes, which is important. But at the same time, we know from a lot of research from race scholars that changing attitudes alone won't change the nature of how racism is baked into all of how we do things in our society. And so we really need to really unpack what structural racism is versus institutional racism. So once we really get deeper into dismantling structural racism, that's when we will probably make more headway into all the more proximal things that we see at the individual level. Because even though I suspect at some point, all the anti-Asian hate that's occurring right now will start to subside when the next pandemic hits, who's the next group to be encountering all of this history will repeat itself unless we change fundamentally how we do things.
0: I would add education. I think we have to start with education. And by the time a lot of these ideas are cemented or the idea that you can scapegoat or blame a group and see that as okay, maybe it's a little late for some people to really truly understand. I also think we need to change the narratives we're telling about our history as a country, and we give a lot of quick lip service to the notion that we are a diverse, just and equitable society, but I think we need to look at some of the darker spots and problem spots, because I think that's the only way we can learn and grow. I think all children, even young children, have an ability to understand that certain behaviors are hateful and we tell them to get along and that this is in reality is how do we exist and coexist respecting one another and it starts a lot with how we talk right how we refer to one another and so I definitely think history, curriculum, education, and since we're in health, we need to talk about health outcomes affected by these things and also institutional healthcare settings and how do we do better as providers and public health stewards.
2: As editor in chief, I've discussed a lot this issue of structural racism as it impacts different communities in the United States and I think it's very important that all communities are at the table where the decisions are taken. So what's your perspective as you're working in the government or university.
0: Alfredo, that is probably the most important. I think representation matters at all levels, especially at leadership levels. And I think we can talk all we want, but if we don't have diversity at the table, and I think it needs to be, if we're talking about structural or racism generally, we need to bring all groups together. So it's not just today. It's an Asian problem. Tomorrow is police brutality against another group. It is all part of a larger issue that we need to confront together. So I definitely think unity and uh, coming together and representation at all levels of decision making process. It's, it's something we need a lot more work on.
1: Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And. Also, the fundamental idea that you're um, alluding to, which is that of power. Who has power to make decisions? At the same time, I, I definitely agree that representation matters in terms of political leadership and everything else. But there are also things that happen that are baked into how we do work that don't even matter in terms of who is in the seat. I'll give you an example from actuarial science and court rulings. So there have been cases where a child is injured and you have to adjudicate how much to pay off to the families of the injured persons, right? So a judge has to make a decision of how much to pay and they base it on estimated future earnings. One of the problems that has happened is that those decisions are based on actuarial projections on the estimated earnings but they are adjusted based on the gender and race of the person who's injured. So, for example, if the payout to a white child is estimated to be a million dollars, because that's what the actual tables tell us, but if the child is, say, female, and we know that women make 75 cents a dollar, that family may only get some $150,000 in compensation. And if it's a black female, the compensation may be even less. Those decisions happen absent any explicit racial animus. It doesn't matter who necessarily the judge is or actuarial is, if they believe that this is the standard practice in the field. What we really need to do is change the practice. But of course, come back to your point that representation matters because representation helps us see where those practices are and helps us make decisions to reverse them. And We need to do all of those things at the same time.
2: Is there anything you'd like to add before we close this session?
0: I really appreciated the opportunity not just to take in what this study has found, but think about what it means for the future of doing research at the intersection of social media, racism and xenophobia, and public health. I think these connections haven't been very much articulated. We think about social media as a great intervention platform, Facebook can do all kinds of public health interventions. But I think this is probably the larger issue facing us in the future. How can we look at this kind of data and understand something about the society and what we can do using this type of platforms for good?
2: Twitter has a huge power to harm. With a single tweet, the former US President and his millions of followers were able to unleash a wave of racist and xenophobic reactions on Twitter and, most certainly, beyond Twitter. In the paper that Dr. G and his colleagues are publishing in this issue of AJPH, there is a link between the hashtags and the wave of tweets containing racial epithets. During the week following the presidential tweets, the hashtag Chinese virus was associated with other anti-Asian hashtags much more commonly than the tweets using hashtag COVID-19. There were 400,000 racist tweets in a week using hashtag Chinese virus as opposed to 88,000 racist tweets using hashtag COVID-19. These numbers are shameful, but the link between hashtag Chinese virus and racist and xenophobic reactions is clear. An important message conveyed by my guests is that we're not helpless against this divisive use of social media. Public personalities can use them to disseminate anti-racist ideas and values as well. And more generally, there is a need to address the roots of racism by controlling the way our institutions, laws, rules and system of governance nurture racism and xenophobia. This so-called structural racism provides the foundation for the success of demagogic discourses on social media and it is the root cause that it is our collective responsibility to dismantle. I'm grateful to Dr. G and Dr. Cho for taking the time to share and discuss their ideas I also like to thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael C. Costanza for edits on an earlier version of this podcast. Anthony Bancy is the student producer for today's episode. The music features the Japanese award-winning koto player Yumi Kurosawa. Kurosawa is one of today's most exciting soloists on this Japan's national instrument. The Koto is a zitter and is related to zitters used in China and Korea and other parts of Asia. The musical snippets come from the song En Japonais in Japanese that Kurosawa recorded with Francis Jacob and his sister Irene on their album en bas de chez moi, down my alley. The papers discussed in this podcast are available on the journal website. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. That's it. Thank you for listening. Je ne ferai plus semblant de te parler normalement.
0: Je saurai prendre un rebours, entendre nuit quand tu dis jour.
2: Et me rendre dans tes replis, chercher dans tes noms un oui. Un sens habillage, à l'éternel L'entendu, malentendu Aux légers emmointillages, petit sous-entendu Chercher, trouver le message, des mots obscurs n'entendre plus Coler les lèvres sur ton visage et retrouver Le temps